Blog you there? Talk Radio. Yep. Hey, good evening, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kelly Outdoors. Um, we have a, we have about a two-minute delay between the time the show starts and the time you guys hear what I'm saying. And so we were talking about stuff, and, and there's this pause there, and both shows, Wendell, Wendell thinks like he's been cut off and he's adrift out there in no man's land. So no, I, I'm hanging on a life preserver out here, Kelly. <laughs> so it's like, are we on? You know, so... That's what's going on. In case you guys are ever listening to this thing and you hear something at the beginning and before you hear the little lady say, welcome to Blog Talk Radio, um, that's just us trying to figure out if we're live or not. <laughs> so anyway, well, no, welcome back. I appreciate the fact that you decided not to go out trick-or-treating and scaring the kids tonight, and you're here on Halloween night um, to do part two of your show. Um, part one was it was an hour and a half long. Actually, lasted longer than that. Um, got a lot of positive responses from it. And Great. Glad to hear just, it. Just a, as a precursor to this, because I know it's going to come up later in the show, uh, or it should, um, Wendell is is the guy that founded Carlson Championship Calls, okay? Um, started making these calls, and people started using them. They started winning some duck calling championships with them. And um, here about 13, 14 years ago, he sold it to a gentleman who has in turn sold it to another gentleman as of late. And what brought this all about was I was contacted by a gentleman at a company called Marshmutt, and you can find them on the Internet. Um, but he, they have a supply of some of Wendell's handmade, original hand-turned uh, duck calls that you can't buy anymore except for through them, okay? Um, these calls are at least 14 years old. That's when you sold the company. Um, they're out of his private collection. And you guys can get those things. This is going to be your last chance to get them because once those are gone, they're gone. All right? So so you guys know. And the price is real reasonable on there. And uh, I understand they, they sold quite a few of them after our last show. So um, long story short, if you really want to get a hold of a piece of American history, and as far as duck calls are concerned, Carlson Championship Calls, uh, check out Marshmutt. And they're on the Internet. Just look at marshmutt.com. So anyway, now... Let's get back to last week's show. There were some, some things that we covered that uh, people had some questions about and that you wanted to, to kind of touch on tonight at the beginning of the show. So why don't we just, I'm going to shut up and let you go. So it's showtime, eh? Yep. I'm with you, Kelly. Right. Uh, first of all, I want to express my appreciation for having me back on as your guest and also the appreciation for your audience for um, hopefully being at least some of them coming back for another dose. But this time, it's going to be a whole lot lighter. The first go-around, I was sincerely interested in trying to get the general lay of the land across to to the uh, interested waterfowlers as to why i done what i done, why I went this uh, call-make thing from a completely different than the normal standard process. Uh, I had a couple of advantages. Number one, I had never seen a duck call made. So I did not come along with any preconceived notions. Number two, I had been in the electronics business for some years already at that point in time, and also uh, played sax for like 20 years and and some other instruments. Um, But the electronics was the key to the approach. And so eventually I was able after because I started this research back in about 64, 65, and I actually started trying to put it into practice, nuts and bolts-wise, probably in about 
67, 68, 69. So it wasn't a quickie deal. You know, plus, obviously, I was making a living. You know, I didn't have time to do this full time by a long shot. But at any rate, uh, going at it that way, I finally developed a call that interfaced with the speech mechanism components. And that's the key to what's going on here and what has gone on for 40 years and better, 50. Gosh, can't be that long. I'm just a kid. But the <laughs> approach is that the what we call a common denominator is chamber pressure, chamber dimension. Chamber pressure, this is a little review here, chamber pressure is a result of the controlled forward pressure by the stomach muscles and diaphragm. The back pressure is a result of the insert bore as well as the configuration and location of hand position. And the cubic centimeter displacement of the call sound chamber is the fixed part of the chamber dimension. The adjustable part is the location and configuration of the tongue, just like in speech. Why go to all of this? Well, because the number of waterfowlers that have the actual talent to pick up a call and get the most out of it are a, a microscopic percentage. And the number of those that were lucky enough to get a hold of a call that actually did work. Understand, I've never said I'm the only guy that ever made a duck call that worked. I think I'm the only guy that's ever made a duck call from a technological standpoint where they all work, and they can either do the nine mandatories or they can't. And you, as an operator, can either do them or you can't. And no, it's not fast, quick, or easy. But the purpose is to give the average duck hunter who doesn't have the natural talent, to, like I said last time, carry a tuner in a bucket or play a radio, an opportunity to at least get the most out of his calling enjoyment possible if he is willing to pay the price of practicing with purpose, going at this like a job, and forget old bad habits. And that's not easy to do. I promise you, practice, practice, practice will only more deeply ingrain old bad habits learned on junk calls. Calls that I don't care how versatile and good or how talented, you can't make work. As I commented last time, you will never learn to play saxophone practicing on a tuba that's been run over by a semi. You've got to have a functional instrument with which to work. So that's the name of the game. Uh, my main bag beyond that was and is still... Better sportsmanship through better calling, and better calling through better call design and better call operational instruction. So it's nothing complicated about it, but it does take a commitment on the part of the individual, just like learning anything else. Uh, example, uh, I've done hundreds of seminars, and almost all small group, three, four, five, six guys, buddies in the blind, and frequently there would be what I'd call the old bull of the blind, he would be kind of, uh, you know, going along with the kids that they'd heard about this duck call thing this dude over in Cedar Rapids was doing. And and so, okay, you guys want to go, I'll go along. But he wasn't paying attention. And finally, you know, after, because it didn't make any sense ever for me to sit there and blow a duck call at him and say, make her sound like this. What the heck, if they can make her sound like this, they don't need the instruction. That's been one of the great fallacies of this. The people that 
the few people that do have the talent and the skill and lucky enough to get a hold of a good call, they can't understand why that dude can't do it like they do any more than that dude can understand how the heck he can do something they can't do. And talent is the difference there. But if you don't have it, you're screwed. The only other way is one or two things. Either be a miserable caller the rest of your life and scare away way more ducks. Hell, the duck call is the greatest conservation aid for waterfowl ever devised because it scared off way more ducks than it ever is called. Or this is your option, to go at it like a job, call that works, system that works, proven, multiple world championships. As a matter of fact, here if I'm tooting my horn, and I don't mean to be, I'm just telling it like it is, uh, Carlson Calls has done a lot, I hope, in the way of improving sportsmanship. But the one thing they've done that no other call has ever done is that back in 1991, they held both first and second in the world and both first and second in the Canadian Nationals. Now, that's never been done before. Best of my knowledge, has never been done since and may never will be. I don't know if Canadian Nationals are even still going. But you've got to have something going on there besides BS, something going on there besides a luck. And that's right. what I am trying to get across. And like, I, like that old boy in, with the bullet of the blind deal. Okay, so now, you know, I'm not blowing this duck call to start with. I'm explaining the things to them like I'm doing to you. So they understand what this is about, what we're after, and how we're going to go about getting it. And, okay, about that time, you know, I'd crack off a couple of lonesome hands maybe or, or a little greeting call and something like this. i got to warm this call up. I've been laying down here in the basement. It's cold. Hang on. Hey, when I played sax, I had to warm that up too before, before the dance, so hang on with me here a second. I'm going to lay the call down. tell you what, that old boy might not have known much about a lot of things, but by golly, he knew what a hen mallard sounded like. Mm-hmm. And first thing, he'd say, how'd you do that? And I'd say, well, I just in explaining how you go about being able to do that. Well, can I do that? I said, well, you want to try? Well, yeah, but you got a special caller. I said, no, no, I don't. I said, every time I do a seminar, I just put the call out that I've demoed with because all the rest of them on the pallet here is going to work too. And so I'd hand him the call, and this is what we'd get. Yeah, wonderful. So now he's looking down the barrel to see if the, what that rat is that crawled in there between the time I blew it <laughs> he did. <laughs> it's a great mystery. Something has happened there. And so I'd explain, you know, hey, I, I, well, how long is it going to take me to be able to do that? And I've had that question asked a lot of times. And I said, well, first, it depends on how much talent you have. Well, I don't know. I never played no horn. I said, well, that doesn't necessarily spell the difference. I says, you know, at least two or three guys that's won world championship with my calls never played an instrument either. So this business about musical ability is uh, not necessarily the key. 
Well, what I, what I have to do? I said, I've just been explaining. You're going to have to go out and pick a job. You're going to have to learn to practice with purpose. Tag with practice, practice, practice. You're going to have to get over all old bad habits. And yeah, you may even have to switch hands that you call with. What do I want to do that for? I said because the subconscious coordination between the hand positions that you've acquired over the years interface with speech mechanism components. Well, I don't know nothing about that. I said, you don't have to know anything about it. It will occur. It's automatic. You can't help it. But if you switch hands, then this totally disrupts that habitual coordination or lack thereof. But I said, I don't know. I, I says, it may take you two, three years. Two or three years? I says, how long have you been calling ducks? Well, 30, 40 years. I says, well, what are you here for? Well, I want to call ducks better. I says, you're freely telling me that you've been trying it your way 30, 40 years, and you're a long ways from satisfied. I said, what the heck's two or three years? I don't know how good you're going to get. That depends on you. But I will tell you this. If you stick at it and you get this straightened out and you learn these new techniques, you'll have it for the rest of your life. And you won't think about doing it any more than you do if you were riding a bike. And if you lay off for... And, fellas, the truth is, I, I haven't blown these calls in 15 years. I, I've been better things to do than toot on duck calls all day long. So I haven't been practicing. But I'll tell you what, it's like a bike. You know, I, I can screw up plenty easy. And I'm nowhere near as good as I used to be. But it's there. It's ingrained. It's like speech because it is literally the components of speech mechanism. And this grunt business, you know, that guy would say, well, uh, make me a call. You know, I'm a hard blower and a heavy grunter. And I says, man, oh, man, oh, man. First of all, it ain't a grunt call. It'd be a whole lot better call a cough call because it's that burst of <coughs> burst of air, particularly as you drop the rear part of the tongue from the soft palate of the mouth. That's part of the gating system. It's that burst. And the, the grunt, no. No more than using grunt to talk with. You use the larynx, the vocal cords, have various pitches just like when you speak. So anyway, I don't want to beat you to death again with technology. I promised that I would not uh, get carried off in that department, but it is dear to my heart. You know, like Kelly and I were just talking before we got on the air. I literally made this business out of a wood pile. Literally. And Kelly said he did too. Finally yep. wised up and went and bought some beat-up bowling pins and found that was easier. <laughs> I tell you what, before I finally, years went by before I finally had enough hedge sawed and air-dried. You can't kill dry hedge. It'll unwrap like a rope for you. Yeah. So you got to take your time. And I used hedge posts. I've made inserts out of hedge posts that stood on the open prairie here for 110 years. And that's a fact, because I know the families that settled here and put those hedge posts in, and their descendants 
held post still perfectly good. Descendants absolutely would not put up with them any longer and tore them out, threw them down in a ravine, and uh, put in these posts, you know, that are nice and handy, and you can drive staples in with no sweat. Of course, they'll rot all to pieces in a few years, but those hedges are still there. So I asked Tom, hey, because I was hunting hedge. Why? Because it's super stable. I've used all kinds of imported and domestic woods, and I still swear by hedge because it is the most stable, solid, and easily obtainable, relatively easy obtainable. And I says, Tom, he was my neighbor over here. He passed away now. I says, I hear you took out some hedge posts. Yeah. I said, where are they? Go down there in the ravine. I says, you care if I get some? No, I've been throwing dead hogs and cats down there, so it might smell a little funny. <laughs> I'm down there digging out posts. You guys know I was serious. But, uh, you know, I saw those with that chainsaw about seven Only in Iowa. <laughs> yeah, you got her. <laughs> hey, talk about that. <laughs> I was a farm kid, and so about the time I was nine years, maybe ten, probably nine, uh, late 40s, uh, I was born in 36. Uh, we moved to town. Well, the folks bought a clothing store. Well, there's a little bitty alley next to that, and Dad, being an enterprising fellow, found an old shoe shine stand. And so he parked that next to the grocery store, about a four foot alley there, and set me up in the shoe shine business. Well, I tell you what, back then there was no TV. And, of course, Saturday night was a big deal. That's where you literally, they determined, would come down to trade. You traded cream and, and uh, uh, eggs and so forth for groceries. Well, now these guys, a lot of them, you know, come right straight off the barnyard, right into town. And this little little town of Dayton, Iowa, up between Boone and Fort Dodge, about five miles off the Moines River. And so, man... It's a good thing I was a farm kid because them old farmers, boy, they're gonna they're gonna celebrate and get their boots shined up. Well, I tell you what, this kid peeled pig poop off a lot of boots for a nickel. Oh, I'm sure, and, and polished I'm them sure. for a dime. So, I found out early on where the money come from. But anyhow, uh, back to this post, Houston. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, I wasn't handed out to this kid. I was a depression kid. So anyway, now back to this hedge post business seven, eight inches long, and some of those are pretty good sized. And, uh, and I have to leave them set, you know, for a year or so to air check. Even though as old as they were, they'd check uh, crack a little bit, and that's I would split them on those cracks so that the insert wouldn't split. I right. made the inserts between the pieces. And the thing is, I said, yeah, you got to set that piece of post on the concrete floor. You ain't going to split this stuff. Uh, sitting on a bench. So I was sitting bare butt on the concrete floor, winter, colder than thunder, using a regular splitting wedge and a three-pound ball peen hammer and splitting out these blanks. And uh, finally, finally, well, in the meantime, I built a design and build a log splitter so that I didn't have to split them out with a wedge. And uh, finally, then the uh, sawed stuff was uh, in conditions where I could use it. So the material didn't come easy, but... Uh, that you know, that's a, a part of a business. When you build it from nothing, it becomes almost like a child of yours. Oh, yeah. You have created it. That's why, to this day, you know, uh, like I've said, yeah, the business belonged to Jim, but it was still my baby. 
belongs to Ryan, still my baby. And uh, I I wouldn't do anything to damage it. In fact, I I hope to to be able to help people understand better what it's about and what it's for. But anyway, I just want to tell the, you, I tried the I tried the 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 splitter. You know, when I I bought it, I got a bunch of those hedge posts too. You know, and yeah, two things about that always amaze me. Number one, I would like to know what the heck kind of a beetle it is that can climb in there and eat that stuff. All right. <laughs> That has to be the toughest beetle on the planet. Well, okay. they don't eat it when it's dry. No, uh, they, I'm telling you. They, they are, and the same with locust. And and I've found that almost any kind of this wood, it has its own um, larva. The larva is what actually eats it. I've I've uh, gotten hedge posts over from Illinois, uh, not too far from where our cabin was for 28 years, uh, that had... Bores, and I mean, I'm talking about holes, channels cut yeah. through that hedge that was uh, oh, probably three sixteenths diameter. Wow! Now that takes one tough big larva, but uh, I've uh, noticed because some of the uh, locusts that I had sawed was scab, and so I being pretty concerned. Hello. Well, I don't know what happened there. We just lost okay. one. Thirty okay, years, huh? I, you 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 just went off like you uh, lost your signal or something. Oh, I don't know. Are you with me now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the thing is that uh, a sapwood underneath the bark is where those buggers hung out. Of course, that's where the most moisture moisture was, and they kept getting tinier and tinier and tinier, and they didn't turn into adults. And finally, now the biggest ones I've seen in in honey locusts was maybe like an oh, eighth inch. And that's that, that, were, that was really big ones. But they were finally down to smaller than like a lead pencil lead. And still, occasionally, I'll see a little bit of that dust underneath some of those shelves. So it's amazing. You know, those... Uh, the larva now the the beetle or the bug, at the mature uh, individual right. is an iridescent green, and a real jittery, acting fast moving, uh, flying type insect. Um, I picked up some hedge. Uh, uh, incidentally, if any of you guys interested in ever trying this, don't ever use hedge that's been dozed out of a hedge hedge line. Because you realize they used to use this in place of fence rows, and that's why so much of this stuff, uh, you know, out in the boondocks, you got to be careful of have woven wire and barbed wire growing into it from being in, in the hedgerow. But the stress on the cellular structure of the wood is such that if it's dozed out or taken out by a hell of a windstorm or tornado, uh, it looks good. You can, you know saw it and dry it, but boy, when you get into that, actually turning it, there'll be little splinters, there'll be indications of, of grain stress, so take my word for it, I found that out the hard way. Some huh. of that wood that I got out of a ditch, I brought in the garage, and um, you know, I was keeping an eye on it, see how the ends were drying and stuff. Out there one evening, I was Almost like if you took, uh, you know, a, co- a couple of quarters and cracked them together, one on the side and one on the edge. 
And I, what the heck's going on? Finally, I, I realized it was coming from over at that hedge. And here were the adults of that breed of boar that were snapping uh, their body. There, there was two segments of the body, and they'd snap those together and uh, make that sound. Anyway, wow. um, <laughs> where were we? Are we gotten way well, off the line? Tell you, I, I, when I first got a whole bunch of hedge posts, I picked them up down south of here, and they were well over 100 years old. And yep. uh, I brought them home and proceeded to ruin a perfectly good chainsaw blade, cutting them into blocks. And there I was. <laughs> you bet. Yeah, I was sitting on my butt out in the garage with a three-pound sledgehammer, and I didn't have a wedge to split them. So I go in the house, and I'm looking around, and there was an old, cheap uh, chef's knife. You know, it has a long, <laughs> thick blade. <laughs> wow. We never used it. I mean, it, it was it was worthless. But, uh, man, I sat out there on my butt that night, splitting those little blocks of hedge with that thing, you know, and... Uh, my butt went numb from the cold, and it was great. Yeah, we had similar experiences. Gary, <laughs> I have never had hedge with pig poop on it, so that's that's a, that's a goal I can shoot for. Yep. So, you know, uh, I um, found out the hard way about uh, sawing because once you get these uh, chunks cut out, okay, now you can. You're only after about what four and a half inches or so for the for the insert. Uh-huh. So now you can cut off any checking that's occurred over the last year or two while those pieces have been dry. But the problem is you can't see inside of it. And one, and I shouldn't even admit this, but I, I, when you get bit by this call bug, it can be very serious. And it happened to be Easter Sunday, and I, I have, I have turned a little more um, uh, civilized since those days. And Vi had said, you know, I'd like to go someplace and ride or something. And I said, well, honey, I'm in the middle of, of cutting these rough blanks here on the bandsaw because and by now I'd gotten them down, you know, where I could get some kind of uh, roundness to them to put them on the lathe. And it was the last piece. And I pushed it toward the, this is an 80-tooth blade now, going to beat heck, and it snapped like glass, and I ran my center finger on my right hand right straight into that blade. And I'm looking at it now. It's still there. And, uh, boy, I mean, right now, you know, I have blood all over the place. So I grabbed a, went in the house quick and grabbed a, a washcloth and thought, you know, well, I can tame this down. Man, it's dripping out of the washcloth. In fact, I think that washcloth is still hanging out there as a reminder of being careful. But I, wow. uh, uh, you know, I hollered by and I said, hey, you still want to go somewhere? And she says, yeah. I, she says, where do you want to go? I says, how about the emergency room? So. <laughs> We went in, and the guys, uh, the doc, uh, I knew him. In fact, he had been our personal MD before he started working out there at the hospital full time. And so he he was he he says, "What's the matter, Wendell?" And I says, "Well, I kind of sawed my finger." Well, he says, uh, "That's what you get for working on Easter Sunday." Uh, I suppose making duck calls. And I says, "Yeah." Well, he says, "Let's see." So he dug around in it some and sewed her up. And I'll bet you for a year or two. There was still little pieces of wood working their way out through the stitch holes, but uh-huh. I quickly designed a tool to hold the blanks uh, on for both the inserts and the barrels, so I never got my fingers in the vicinity of the blade again. But the darndest part was every one of those teeth slammed my finger down on that steel table, and I was black halfway to my elbow. I mean, it just pounded the heck out of out of my finger. But anyway, you got another comment, or I'm going to change subjects no. here. Go. 
Um, you'd asked last time or implied last time that we shouldn't be so technical heavy, and I agree with that. You know, I hadn't in, intended on beating everybody to death with technology because it's not everybody's bag. But it is uh, a alternative route, and that's, of course, what we've already covered. Um, I told you, even before the show started, that I wanted to clean up a couple of errors, do a little housekeeping before we went uh, any further. We've already went a half hour further than I'd anticipated to go. Um, First of all, on the last demo of the last of the nine mandatories, when I checked what I had said on on the previous session, I inadvertently said that you... Increase pressure, increase forward pressure to drop out. Obviously wrong. You've got to reduce forward pressure in order to drop the chamber pressure sufficiently for the reed to drop out of uh, out of oscillation. Here, I'll lay the phone down and demo that. Okay. <laughs> That's that mournful sound you get, uh, you know, when somebody just blows in the duck call. Uh, it's also the sound that if you're working ducks on a bluebird day and you're in a little pothole and you're tight and they're tight and you drop out, and that sounds like you just set off a cannon and kiss your ducks goodbye. So got that cleaned up. Uh, the other thing was I was singing the praises of Chick Major's family and, and – uh, Chicken Sophie, a dear, dear lady, and of Patty, Dixie, and Brenda. And I inadvertently said, real southern babes. Sorry, ladies. I meant to say real southern bells in the best interpretation of the term, which is, if you check it out, a lady with grace, charm, strength, and dignity who was either born in or has lived in the South for some length of time. So I apologize for any other inadvertent slips of the mouth that may have occurred, and uh, I'll try harder this time to uh, to not be screwing up. But, you know, when you're doing an hour and a half pretty much off the top of your head, an occasional 76-year-old brain fart is inevitable. So cut me some slack, if you will. Um, the other thing, too, I wanted to mention, I did mention Chick by name, obviously, and, of course, to try to mention all the call makers in Stuttgart that have been there and, and are and so forth, uh, impossible. I, I just wouldn't be able to do it. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention Butch and his rich in tone. I only met him once about 35 years ago, and we were both otherwise occupied. He was with a customer, and I was with uh, the guys I was with. And, and we just acknowledged each other with a casual greeting. But uh, needless to say, he's been a very talented guy and has made many, many successful duck calls and has contributed a lot toward the world's uh, uh, competition. So I did want to clarify on that. Now, I wanted to take a couple of other things here. Um, I'd also wanted to finish a story that I started and because of time restraints didn't get finished. If you guys are with me from last time, 
uh, I'll refresh your memory, and for those who may be tuning in for the first time or listening for the first time, uh, these guys had called from Ohio, as I recall. They were coming through to hunt over on on the Missouri, possibly flat, but I think it was Missouri. Anyway, uh, man, they'd had some problems or something. Of course, they didn't have cell phones back then. They were on the road, and I waited and waited and waited. Finally, it was like 11 o'clock, and I had an old 56 Chevy at the time. It had a kind of a big back deck trunk on it. I'd curl up on that trunk and was sleeping when they finally pulled the driveway. So now they wanted to buy, buy goose calls, and I'd dealt with them before. I knew who they were, or I wouldn't have you know, been screwing around like this. So anyhow, now I get invite them in. And here we go with the with the seminar and the demo, and we were sitting literally where I'm sitting now, right at my desk, and they were on the other side of the desk, and we were whacking and banging goose calls. Now my sweet bride's bedroom was and is right straight above where I'm sitting. Now she had to get up and go to work in the morning, as I did, but that's my own business. And, you know, she has been unbelievably patient with duck calls all these years. And I never heard her complain ever before to me. But in this case, she did say the next day that she would think it would be a good idea if I held these seminars a little earlier and not under her bedroom. So I got to to give her a lot of credit for a lot of patience. Now, one of those guys, one of those guys, turned out to be a real double-barreled rectum. He started copying my copyrighted tape and selling them at, like, gun shows and call shows and stuff. Now, I didn't know about this because I didn't have time to be going to any of these shows. I was, you know, cranking calls. Well, I was in my office there at the electronics business in CR one day, and, and the secretary, you know, says, well, there's somebody on the phone who wants to talk to you. Well, that's normal. So I pick up the phone, and here's this guy on the other end. He says, Wendell Carlson? I says, yeah. He said, my name da 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 I said, well, uh, I'm, I'm happy to make your acquaintance. He says, yeah, you don't know me. And he says, I, I'm not even that much into calls and calling, but I, I hope it's okay, you know, that I, I call you there at the business. And I said, yeah. So I says, so what's on your mind? He says, you know, there's a guy jumping your copyright. I says, really? He says, yeah. He says, I, I wouldn't have uh, bought one from him and uh, gotten his name and so forth had it not been for the fact that I also make copyrighted instructional material on a cassette. I happen to be in the uh, investment business, and uh, he said, uh, you know, it just hacked me off, this dude, you know, slicing you for years of work that went into this this instruction. So he gave me the guy's name, and he says, I I will be happy to send you the uh, tape that I purchased as, as evidence. And I says, hey, more power to you. I still have it, incidentally. And so now I know that this guy is Jump McFadden. And I had hunted in his vicinity with him out on the Missouri previously. Well, now, I mentioned this to a buddy or two, and pretty soon the whole tribe hunted together knew about it. 
but nobody had said anything to me about it. So after the day's hunt, lo and behold, here these guys showed up. We were in a kind of a wreck area, basement area, in the, in the basement of this motel. And so all of us were down there together. And there was kind of a lull in the conversation, and I walked over to this guy, and I says, uh, I'd like to see you outside. Because I didn't want to talk about this business stuff in front of the guys. You know, there's no point of there getting involved. Well, of course, the minute you say, see you outside, <laughs> boy, they're figuring there's going to be a rumble here. So out the side, I go with this guy, and he's about six inches at least taller than me and younger and <laughs> looked pretty tougher. And I says, da-dee-da-dee-da. He says, no, 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 I didn't do that. I says, don't lie to me. I says, I got you by the posterior. I got the evidence, and a man that will swear to the fact he bought this from you. And boy, oh, boy, it was it was dark, but there was a light out there in the parking lot, and um, I could see he got a little paper. I says, I tell you what. I know you got a business out there, but I says, if I ever hear this happening again, I'm going to own that business and probably your house. Because I said, I don't have to put up with this crap. Oh, no, no, never, never, never. Oh, no, no, I would never do that again. And as far as I know, he never did. But, of course, we walked down the basement together, and all these guys are looking, you know, wondering how that went. And we just ignored it. it that was the end of it, but... It was an interesting, uh, an interesting exchange. Anyway, that finishes that story up in elongated form. Now, also one thing happened in the last session that uh, Kelly concluded that it was an out-of-body experience, <laughs> and that was when I started to explain how I was able to teach Jim James how to make Carlson Championship calls with him in Omaha and me in Cedar Rapids. And I tell you, it wasn't easy. As I commented previously, I think the only duck call, are those maybe two corn cob and clothespin calls, that I actually sat down and made the whole thing. Oh, early on, I probably did. I don't remember a long time ago. But, you know, in real real life, I didn't have time for that. I, you know, I never used mass uh, copy lathes or any of that stuff. But I did turn all the barrels once and all the insert blanks at once. And I tell you, you walk up to that lathe, like I mentioned last time, you hadn't done this in a whole year. You feel dumber than a brick, and pretty soon man, you're whipping them through to beat heck because you really get good and fast at it you keep every day working at it. But anyhow, when I was into the latter part of a, what I call call phase production, I would get my VCR camera out, and, of course, that wasn't any easy trick because if you guys are any woodworkers, you know I'm ankle deep in chips, blade chips, and the air is full of dust. And, of course, there's high voltage inside of a VCR camera. And so it was a bugger, you know, trying to keep the, the dust out. And now I finally got that handled. Now i got to narrate this thing. And I can't uh, can't be talking. i got to have a mask on. I had asthma back then. And a darn good mask, a double respirator deal, Bob. Anyhow, I took the mic out of some little, I don't remember just what it was, but I had a little tiny mic, and I mounted that inside of the uh, mask. 
And now I need an amp to run into the mic into and have enough drive to run into the VCR camera for audio. So I had a had a remember I've spent my life in electronics, so this was no no biggie. I had a little uh, transistor radio and I just interjected into the audio system and drove the camera with that audio. So now I could narrate. Sound like I was a deep sea diver, but at least Jim can understand. So now I'm narrating the every function with that particular phase, like turning the barrel. So I'd send that tape to him. He'd study it. And Jim the smart cookie. That guy uh, had hunted in all his life. He he was in the Douglas County Attorney's Office for 28, 29 years, headed up the rubber check division over in Omaha. And he also, of course, had won world championship and and uh, taught my instructional system for like 20 years. So we weren't strangers. So anyhow, now uh, he's soaking this up. And, you know, maybe in a week or two or whatever, when he had a chance to come over on a weekend, we'd work together and he'd seen same tools, same equipment, same process. And he'd done some woodworking. So, man, it wasn't long, but he's whipping things out pretty good. So we did that with every phase of it. And it took about a year. But it was the only way we could figure out how he can be in Omaha and I can be in CR and we get this job done because obviously I didn't want to sell this and not have him able to do the job properly. Uh, Like I say, you know, he could buy it, but it was still my baby and I didn't want things boogered up. But anyway, that more than covers that very well. The other thing I wanted to comment on... um, was that guys got my calls, hopefully get my calls yet, for reasons other than just calling ducks. And obviously collecting is one of them. And over the years, I met a lot of guys, many, many hundreds, uh, you know, for for the uh, calling aspect, but some really interesting people for the collector's standpoint. One of the guys that first came to mind when I thought about interjecting this phase of the business uh, in the uh, in this uh, uh, program was an individual that came here about three times, as I remember, and he walked funny. He, and he had a strange way of speaking, and I knew there was something, you know, that wasn't just right. He was having a hell of a time with trying to figure out the system. He wasn't, wasn't making it. Didn't have the lung capacity. Didn't have the ability, you know, to to hit the forward pressure. Excuse me. Anyhow, finally he told me, he says, you know, I took three rounds of sniper fire through my middle. I says, what? Yeah, and he pulled his shirt back and pulled up his T-shirt. Man, he wasn't kidding. He took three rounds of sniper fire through his middle and lived, obviously. Showed me the results. And... The last visit when he was here, I remember him standing out by his car, getting ready to leave. And he said, well, Wendell, I may never get out of your calls what you've designed into them. But just like Jack Benny with his Stradivarius violin, I derive a whole lot of pleasure from just owning them. And, I, you know, that that's a, a, a pretty neat thing. That's pretty Another... Cool collector thing that comes to mind 25 years ago uh, yeah I'd be 25 or better 
a guy I dealt with that was collecting my calls, serious collector, he he commissioned me to make him a set of 40 calls. And back then, we settled on 10 grand. Now, that 10 grand today is whole bunch more than 10,000. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, in fact, he emailed me uh, when he found out about this program thing. And I told him that I would mention about this, if it was okay with him. And he says, sure. He obviously, you know, had some bucks. Uh, he was a chemical engineer, worked in a steel mill down in St. Louis area, and obviously a bachelor <laughs> to be spending yeah. money this way. Anyhow, why 40 calls? Because by that time, I had developed the six uh, volume levels that I commented about last time and that also were the um, the uh, core of the uh, purpose of developing the Volachoke. So there's six of them. Then there was the resonant cavity Canada, the resonant cavity Snow Blue, the flute, and if I recall correctly, diver, diver call. Anyway, ten of them in a set. One was black ebony. One was um, cocobolo. Um, uh, black walnut and tiger stripe oak. Not not fiddleback maple. Similar in appearance, but the tiger stripe oak is considerably heavier, denser wood. Anyhow. Uh, he has way more calls than I do of mine. In fact, he even has examples of the steps of development during the creation of the injection mold. But he keeps all this in a hermetically controlled vault. And, uh, yeah, he's got he's got the dangest Carlson Championship call collection in the world. That's awesome. So, I'm sorry? I said that's awesome. Yeah, it really is. And, Roger, I tell you what, buddy, I appreciate your investment and your loyalty. And um, I don't go I, – I, I haven't seen him. He's a black belt holder, as a matter of fact, also in judo. Um, but, uh, yep, he's, uh, he's quite a guy. Anyway, we touched on the injection mold thing last time. And – I I patented it, like I indicated last time, because the complexity of developing a sound chamber and sounding surface, read combination, that was capable of having the extended range of accepting the changing back pressure from the necessary change of the bore uh, obviously, you know, you got you want more air to come out, want more volume. You're going to have to have more air flow, and in order to do that, obviously, increasing the size of the bore is going to reduce the amount of back pressure, aka more forward pressure. The problems of developing those chokes, and by chokes, if, if, if you're unfamiliar with this situation. Uh, the mold was designed to have a, uh, a socket, a void, 
in the front that as a secondary function was threaded and you thread these half a dozen chokes in and out just like chokes in a shotgun except instead of controlling pattern you're controlling the volume and as I've commented before I don't care how good a caller is nor even how dumb the ducks are uh, rest assured nobody calls all ducks all the time you know some guys don't ever call any ducks any of the time uh, some guys call some of the ducks some of the time and and the most of the ducks get called by pretty much the same guys almost all the time but nobody calls all the ducks all the time you got to yeah. have some callable ducks and as you duck hunters know you get those old reserve wise been around forever they know where all the signs are and which side the signs to stay on and they teach the newcomers coming in in a little bit that whole program they're tough to call and i'll tell you another thing big river ducks are dang tough to call uh i used i used to know this old boy down at the cabin and he's down there a lot on the river and like he'd say yeah them rich buggers you know they got all the money they they come out of chicago them doctors and lawyers and they they get some island points that, you know, us regular folks, we don't ever get a crack at. And he says, you know, they come down here on weekends, and I suppose they got to wonder sometimes why them ducks are so damn shy. He says, I've been sitting on them blinds all week long, keeping them warmed up, and keep, keeping the ducks warmed up. <laughs> yeah. He just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> but you anyway. Know, I'm going to just jump in here real quick. You know, you said you about bet. big river ducks. Um, they're hard to call, and large reservoir ducks are too, because Absolutely. they generally know they know where they're going. You know, and yeah, they got a dope. They don't get distracted by much. Well, yeah. they know more about the place than the than the hunters do. Yeah, they literally you know what, do. When I, was a, when I was a kid, true story, we took a bunch of uh, the gallon sized bleach bottles, okay, and we painted sure. the front of them black and and the back of them black, and then we'd string them about six foot apart, and then we'd run them out to to I mean way out there. And then we'd run them back up close to shore, and then we'd have our puddle duck decoys, the real good ones, you know, up there in front of the blind. And you'd be surprised how many ducks would, would see that, that long string of ducks and come peeling in there, and then they'd end up splashing down in the, in the puddle duck decoys that we probably never would have got a shot at if it hadn't been for that long string of homemade diver decoys. Absolutely. I knew a guy that done the same thing, Kelly, except he used uh, uh, gasoline and body undercoat. <laughs> for the color. So you made them all kind of brown like hen mallards. But no, essentially what you were doing was a similar trick with decoys, if we can get off the call subject here a little bit. Uh, I tried all kinds of different decoy sets and studied it, you know, for decades. And I tell you, I am thoroughly convinced that the old J-hook is the most effective uh, setup that there is all things considered, and it has two advantages. If you are a mediocre to poor caller, you can have your decoys, your head, head of the, actually it would be the bottom of the, part of the bottom of the hook of the J, uh, quite a ways, you know, a reasonable length out from your from your blind. Further, if, you know, you don't have a, a decent blind, you don't want them, you know, the ducks coming in seeing you too close. If you're really good, you can have the decoys right up against the blinds. We've literally done that. Uh, but the the point is, just like you're talking about with this 
uh, handle out there. If you set this upright, of course, you're going to have the wind basically coming in past your ears, going past you, mm-hmm. and the ducks, of course, are going to land into the wind, take off into the wind. That's that's just like airplanes. That's why they do it. Airplanes like ducks. But the point is that if you find that the ducks are slipping past the end and not getting hooked into your pocket, you can always swipe some of the decoys off of one side of this. Actually, you can start out like a U. Swipe some off the one side and stick them down the line on the other. Get that, like that handle out there further, and it'll essentially block them. The reason it blocks is because puddle ducks, of course, when they get airborne, they slap the water with their wings and go straight up. And in fact, I've on occasion when they get real excited, they will run into one another. Dang seldom, though. They're good at it. They make their living at it, so they're pretty good at it. But now that'll snag them, and they'll tend to follow that line in uh, to the uh, concentration. And if the wind switches on you, uh, you can uh, reverse it, put the handle out the other way, put the blockers out there, and uh, and and bring them on in. Uh, it's way more effective than just throwing out a bunch of decoys out there. That's that's a dumb thing to do. Uh, another thing that helps a lot on decoying ducks: keep that pocket clean. You know, there's a lot of times you have smart weed and brush and crap around, and ducks will land on that. But it, you know, they like. That's another reason why you should try, make your set if you can, where it's reasonably calm out of the wind because when they're looking down that water if it's choppy they don't know about what they're going to land on a stick they can't see into it any better than we can but if it's smooth reasonably clean and you got all that junk out of there they're way more likely to come in and come in tighter uh, so there's more you know to getting ducks in close than just how good the caller you are it's all together everything you know, how yeah. soon you spot them, how soon you can get on them. Ducks will tend to continue to come toward the first call they hear and the first spread of decoys they see. So there is validity in having lots of decoys. Biggest spread that I remember is hunting over was right about 700 mags. That was in a big reservoir out in Kansas, if I remember. And we used to go caravanning. You know, we had like four of us would have uh, 16, 18-foot a John boats with good blinds on. None of this tacky laugh chicken wire business. You know these were framed out of uh, conduit, three quarter inch generally. And uh, uh, I built the first one. I welded it myself with oxyacetylene rig and used three quarter inch and and built the frame. Then uh, used aluminum skin. Keep the keep it so it don't get top heavy. Keep your weight down. And put another set of ribs on the outside so that when you put their, uh, like, graduated or just regular 4x4 livestock fence over, it's separated by three-quarters of an inch from the skin so that you can push your brush down in there. It stays on. Pin oak is the best thing to use. If you can get that, man, we'd run sometimes 60, 70 mile an hour into a 30 mile an hour wind, and those pin oak leaves would still be on. That's your base coat. That gives you, you know, something with which to work. Sure, when you pull into your hunting area, you'll want to add some of the local vegetation. You want to, 
you know, you don't want to stick out with a big wad of pin oak and everything else is, is bulrush. But uh, some of those things like that uh, can spell a difference. Also, uh, like with my blind boat, uh, I had it sealed to the gunnels and had a front deck, uh, of course, uh, not any too big because the more room you take up out there, the less you have inside. So we had cooking stoves and heating stoves, and, and I developed the principle of the bunk the, I, I wanted it both sides of my boat. Some of the guys eventually evolved into just one side. But I wanted it both sides because you got a better, again, distribution of weight. So you get in rough water, uh, you, you don't want this thing side heavy. So now the hinge on these were on the aisle side of these bunks. And literally, you know, you could just close the lid. It would swing down toward the gunnel. You can envision what I'm talking about here. And you sleep on them. You know, we did many times. But for transportation of decoys, because you're wondering how the hell we get 700 decoys out there to Kansas. Well, I'm telling you, we had all the same length decoy lines, if I remember right, around seven feet. We had all the same type of lead strap anchors. I don't even know if they're legal anymore. And you do a body figure eight wrap and wrap that uh, lead around the neck on that decoy, and you can wrap those decoys up so fast and so tight that you just they just do not get tangled up. So now you got this bend. You've lifted the seat up, so now it's on the aisle side. You got the skin of the blind on the gunnel side, and you got a great big bend there. You can throw the decoys in there, and you can carry a hundred decoys, bags slicker than a whistle. Mm-hmm. And the way we worked that out there, now you're going to say, Carlson, you are BSing me, that is impossible. But I'm going to tell you, if I remember right, it took us a little over a half an hour to pick up those 700 decoys. And the way that was possible is because we'd all hunted together for years. All of our kids were with us. They'd all hunted since they were little bitty squirts. And the way we worked it was the big strapping guys was clear on the outside, and they were wrapping decoys and slinging them as hard as they could, and they were getting about halfway into the boat. And the splashers, that's, that was a guys like me that was in between. So you were wrapping and picking and, and slinging toward the boat, uh, the blind, and these guys were throwing them into you. You were relaying. They were landing by the kids. They thought getting soaked was fun. And they were relaying the kids inside the blinds. And, boy, I'll tell you what, when you got a team like that, uh, there was like four, four, five, six guys per boat. So um, it gets, you know, it's like anything. You go at it like a job and get enough experience. And I'll tell you something else. Gang calling is the best way in the world to run ducks off. But controlled, experienced team calling by top-notch callers. Most of all us guys were world-sanctioned state or regional champions and our kids, too. And I'm not blowing here. I'm just telling how it was. And, boy, hey, when you hunt together for a long time, you all know, you know, how to back off at the right times. How to re- Man, can you get ducks' attention. Holy Moses. Uh, with that kind of volume. Uh, and, again, it wasn't an ego trip. You know, you've got to be willing to back off. Calling shots, simple. Again, no ego trip here. We take turns. And all those guys were very capable of reading those birds and knowing when to call them. 
and and warranty if you screwed up because you were the one buying the beer. There you go. I'll take them at the wrong time. You're in trouble. Hey, but anyway, there's there's some additional you. thoughts about working ducks. How come some guys get them, some guys don't? And at the risk of again sounding like a egotistical old fart, uh, I'll tell you the truth. I don't need a lie. A buddy of mine, old Spence. Spence was blowing duck call in our blind when he and Chelsea and I hunted together way back in the in the mid to late fifties. And Spence was the only one called because he he's the only one who knew what the hell was going on. And Dick Schultz was the first guy to win a world championship with one of my calls. But anyway, Schultz was a a uh, he is a true sportsman, a true friend. He's living up in Minnesota now. Brooks he lives over in in, um, in Nebraska, and. He was the most conscientious guy. In fact, uh, the DCAN, Duck Callers Association of Nebraska, uh, he was very instrumental in getting that thing going. It lasted for many years, uh, far more than any other, you know, uh, association like that that I'm aware of. And there was a Spence Brooks... uh, uh, conservation. I got a picture of of it over here. Hang on a second. Go over and see for sure what what that deal was. Yeah, Spencer Brooks Conservation Award. And uh, that was granted to me some years ago. And I still hang up in my bedroom. But, you know, with guys like that to hunt with, that were knowledgeable, good sportsmen, and a lifetime of uh, of hunting together. Those are the kind of things that makes waterfowling, and I guess any sport for that matter, meaningful. Uh, I've dealt with with thousands of guys, and there's a few that uh, that really stick with you. Anyway, talking about guys and duck calls, I've shipped duck calls to Tokyo, Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait. And you're wondering, what in the thunder is somebody doing with duck calls in the desert? Well, you know, it's pretty simple. If you remember back the Gulf War, General Schwarzkopf's War, mm-hmm. well, old Saddam went crazier than thunder and set off gaboons oil well fires over there. How are you going to put them dang things out? Nothing like a bunch of Texas oil boys to handle that job. And, man, there was a bunch of them went over there. Well, they found out early on that their spare time has best not been spent with the local chicks because those guys like to cut heads off. Yep. And so they didn't have nothing to do. And so they heard about the calls, you know, particularly goose calls. And uh, so I shipped them (laughs) a bunch of goose calls to the desert. And uh, I always admired Schwarzkopf. You know, that, that guy had more savvy and all his damn politicians that caused nothing but trouble. And so after the war pretty well tamed down, I found, I found out, you know, that he, he was a duck hunter and had a big black lab named Bear. And the troops called him Bear behind his back. He didn't like that too good. And so I thought, you know, 
Without being too damn presumptuous, I I would like to to, to know that Schwarzkopf's got one of my calls. So you think, man, it was tough to find out addresses to Saudi Arabia and that. It was a bugger to find out how to send a duck call to General Schwarzkopf. Finally, I tracked down uh, his, his office thing in California. And, of course, now, nowadays I don't think it would be possible. But back then I finally convinced that secretary that I was on the level. And so finally she gave me an address, not his direct address, an address that she assured me he would get the call. And by gosh, about two, three months later, danged if I didn't get a letter from the general thanking me for the the call and uh, and the kind words that I'd put a letter in, in there expressing my appreciation for his efforts uh, at uh, winning that war. Anyhow, I got a question. Kelly, I've been list. going at it hard here. And if did you have any questions or anything? Well, oh, yeah. One other thing before I I <laughs> before I relinquish your show to the host. <laughs> uh, a buddy of mine. Uh, well, yeah, a buddy and a call collector. Uh, emailed me the other day, and he said, uh, "I know that you made flute goose calls, center sound assembly. Remember, if you guys was here last last couple of weeks ago." I mentioned about that center sound assembly flute that I did not patent because it was reasonable to think that other call makers could come up with something functional. Uh, in that, in that, so shortly there were like four or five different companies, different call makers, making a center sound assembly flute. But don't let them BS you. This old boy invented that. And the reason I did, as I mentioned last time, the standard issue flute goose call that everybody, you know, is pretty much using was a double-barreled SOB. You had to be a mastermind and a maniac to put her back together that it would work. And I didn't see why you couldn't use a sound assembly that had the same principle of reed, retainer, sounding surface design as with a duck call. Put a mouthpiece on one end, barrel on the other and this um, this collector asked me if I'd comment a bit more about it how I came up with the design the design of course of the sound assembly was a bugger and particularly because it's quite small it's only about an inch and a half long something like that and the other thing that was really tough on development was the acoustics because of the necessary thinness of the walls of the barrel. I made two coca bolos. I made standard issue was um, thorny locust. And I made not a lot, but quite a number of white oak and black walnut. But all the sound assemblies were, of course, hedge. And so... The problem then was to come up with a way of making this that uh, didn't require so terrible much time. And um, it turned out, you know, to be a good working call. It turned out to be uh, a, a pretty much a standard issue thing. But I only made these two cocobolos. I've got one, and a buddy of mine over in Burlington, uh, I gave him... The other one, because he was one hell of a big 
Mississippi River goose call blind or goose hunting blind builder. Now I don't know if you guys you know how many of you are familiar with with the Mississippi, but I'll tell you what everything is bigger, everything is tougher, everything gets ground down harder there than anywhere. You know it's just it's just big. And putting up a goose blind that you can back an 18-foot John boat into on the one side and have like four, five, six shooter holes on the other, that is a construction project. And at that point in time, man killers were used. Now, man killers were named that for a dang good reason. I built one of them many years ago. I used a piece of six-inch well casing about four feet long and two chunks of two and a quarter inch well pipe, uh, they were about three, three and three and a half, three feet long, that I welded to the sides right straight across from one another. Those were the driver handles. You understand the principle here is that you, of course, cap that pipe and you set that over uh, normally, driving a standpoint well down on the river for a cabin, uh, you know, for a well. And, uh, but normally they're halfway same size, but this this one was serious business, and I also welded a couple of vertical bolts to the top of that plate that I welded on, which is really the battering part as you drop this down on whatever you're driving, so that I could put uh, scale weights on. I don't know if you're familiar with scale weights, but they were used on like uh, various types of uh, industrial scales weighing that they'd weigh like 25 pounds or 35 pounds. So if if you're really tough and got one big brute on each handle, you could lift all of the steel, and boy, when you dropped that baby, whatever it was on was going down. And we'd use trees, you know, like four or five-inch trees uh, the right length, and that would be the anchor point for one of the corners of the blind, and whatever material you had, you'd put the other the other uh, parts in. Well, they were called man colors because when you're driving these, you are literally standing up on boxes or ladders or whatever you can in a john boat. And if the water's at all rough, which it always is, trying to get that man color up on top of this, it can depend on how deep the water is, but normally, you know, you wouldn't be hunting in real deep water out of the road, uh, not out in the main current, of course. But still, you know, if if that thing slipped or you lost it, not only would it come crashing down and practically kill anybody to hit, but it'd knock a hole in the bottom of the boat. Happily, guys have got smarter. And what, as I understand it, now this has come along since I've done any of that business, but as I get it, the way these guys are doing it now, you get a generator, you get a pump, you get a piece of uh, like half, three-quarter inch conduit, and you strap that to the side of your tree that you're going to drive. Now you run a hose up to the top of that, put a coupling on, of course, set that stake, set that pole, set the whatever you know you want to call it, uh, and kick on the generator, drive the pump, pump drives water, forces down the conduit alongside of the tree, and digs out mud underneath it. Force of the water digs it out. Down goes your your poles for building the blind. So a lot safer and a lot better if you guys are inclined to be making a big river goose blinds. Now, Kelly, you were saying what? 
I was going to ask you. <laughs> um, if you're still awake, buddy. <laughs> no, I'm I'm awake. I was just going to ask you if, if you wanted to take a call. We've got a caller that's been on hold for about 18 and a half minutes here. If he's that tough, I'll handle him. All righty, I'll put him on here. Okay. Hello. Area code, area code 402, you're on the air with uh, Wendell Carlson and Kelly Outdoors. This Carl Wendelson. This is Carl Wendelson. Hey, who am I talking at? Who do you think? Well, I know a whole lot of guys that can make a duck call squawk like that, even over a telephone that distorts the heck out of them. <laughs> well, I got you on a speakerphone, on a cell phone. Jim James. Not the Jim James. Well, whatever. I, I haven't talked to I, I haven't talked to you on the phone for quite a while, partner. Hey, it's good to hear from you. What do you got in mind? Nothing. I just we're we're up here in North Dakota, me and Al. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, we're up here shooting ducks, and uh, I knew that uh, you know you were going to be on. We emailed a little bit, of course, and I said <laughs> I was going to try to call in. Well. Well, by oh. gosh, now that's that's neat. I appreciate that. I just well, as you are you are you listening to the program? Well, I just, like, 18 minutes ago, you know, turned, and I didn't realize you could hear it through the cell phone. I, you know, this technology is great, ain't it? Ain't it, though? Electronical stuff makes me really nervous. You get shocked out of that stuff, you know. <laughs> hey, we're, you know so you, are you and Al doing any good? Yeah, yeah, we're shooting ducks. You know, we're hunting them in the fields up here with, you know, with the uh, field, you know, with layout lines and, and uh, you know, ducks and geese. But uh, there's a lot of waterfall up here, let me tell you. Well, you know, when uh, I was talking to um, Chris over in in Nebraska, and uh, he had had a chance to get away from his work there, you know, in Blair uh, with the um, and uh, a guy had invited him out, you know, and uh, he said, you know, I've been hunting a long time. And I says, I know, Chris, and he says, I have never seen snow snows come down like they did in front of that front that come down through. That's about well, what a week. We can have to go. But there must yeah, be a lot of them still up there, Jim. Oh, I'll bet you today we've seen a million snow geese. Really? You know, we're we're in the middle of North Dakota. Yeah. You know, and there's pintail, widgeon. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of little ducks still up here. But uh, there's a lot of stuff that's coming your guys' way for anybody that's listening down south. I mean, there is a lot of waterfowl up here. Well, I'd read in, uh, in uh, Waterfowler magazine, that you know the count was uh, up, uh, particularly like on mallards. And uh, yeah, they say you know that there's more ducks than ever. And, yeah, you know, I, you know, I you was, still got to be the right place at the right time. There's no question about that. Oh there, yeah, there, yeah, there, yeah. There is a it's like fishing. You got to have some fish around. You want to get some. <laughs> it helps. Well, you know, uh, it was really heartening them. I'm sorry. No, you're telling these old stories. It's, you know, calling you on a cell phone, and I was thinking, you know, a couple of weeks ago when I was listening to the other, when you were on before, you know, Jesus, you know, back back when, you know, I'm getting old too, you know, but... Uh, Where are you now? You must be, what, what are you, about 64? 61, Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> <laughs> I had a needle in there. I had anybody that retires at like 56 or whatever, you got to needle that guy. <laughs> 51. Sixty-one. But anyway, <laughs> you're you know, lying. Thinking, no, back in the, you know the, when I met you, eighty-seven. Yeah. 
you know, a guy had to save his money for about two months before he could call you on the telephone because, you know, in those days there weren't no cell phones. You had to call <laughs> on the landline, and it cost you you know, it cost you about 15 or $20 to call you because, you know, every conversation was a two-hour conversation. And Not by me. Like, I never I never talked that much. It's the other guy who always talked all the time. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, everybody's figuring that out, aren't they? But, uh, but, 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 you know, how things have changed, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about me and Jim O'Keefe getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And this is how this is how devoted, you know, Kelly, that these, these, these guys were. You know, we'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, we'd drive four hours over to Wendell's house, get there in the morning, and we'd sit there and go have a seminar for till 4 o'clock in, in the afternoon, get in the car, drive back home, get home at midnight. Well, most of the time, you, half of you guys would stay here and eat up all my food and drink up all my booze and go home, stagger home the next day. Well, you know, you know, me and O'Keefe <laughs> didn't do that. I don't know no. about the rest. Of your, well, your you neither. Neither you nor Jim could hold up your end of the deal. <laughs> no, but, but I mean that's you know how 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 times change, you know. But that's oh, how my. dedicated. That's how yeah. dedicated we were. You know, yeah, and like, that that's well, that was. The, Rob that was the, flew down from Canada, you know, for a seminar. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, you know, I was going to follow up. I'd commented about, you know, that the calls had won the Canadian National and, and first right. and second in that, and that was Rob. And Rob was a, was the guy that uh, digitized on that uh, three and a half floppy. Yeah. Remember that instructional yeah. information. And uh, Henry was his sidekick. Now you know that that Rob Henry passed away, Jim. Talent. Huh? Henry was the one with the talent. He was much more talented than Rob was, but uh, you know they were both good. But the, but the point being that they were willing to come from Montreal to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to get the instruction. And in, not uh, just once. You know they they come down here at least three or four, maybe five times. And I know. And, and I, and I know you, like me, you know, I have, I've had people you know, fly into my house from, well, from Prince Edward Island, from California, anywhere in between. You know, they would come for that instruction. And that's yeah. how powerful, that's how powerful that instruction was and still is if somebody wants to, to put the time in, go about it like a job, like you said, yeah. and, uh, and try to forget and unlearn a lot of old bad habits. Yeah. <laughs> I used to have guys come from Walla Walla, Washington, and bring me Walla Walla sweet onions, <laughs> you know. And of course, uh, Scott Vicks, you know, he won the first uh, uh, California uh, regional out there. In fact, I mentioned in the first program that the call that he won that with is hanging here on the old bulletin board. He he sent it back. Yeah. Uh, did I ever tell you that? Yeah. Yeah. He, he sent he sent her back to me and. Said, hell, it didn't matter to him. He said they all worked. Boy, you know, getting the guy to give you a championship callback without even asking for it. There were some special people, you know, that both you and I have met over the years. And it's there's there's more gratifying aspects to some of this duck call thing than than people would normally normally think yeah. about or realize. You know, and another thing, you know, you're talking, you know, like he he sent you a championship callback because he didn't have no problem. He could, he, you know, they all worked and. You know, we know we know one, and I'm not going to say any names here, but we know a world champion who who picked one out of a grocery sack. Because you know, Wendell was real real high tech in his day. He would send down a, a grocery, a Walmart sack full of duck calls, Stuttgart every year, and, and
nothing. This guy won the world contest by pulling one out of that bag. He blew it, uh, you know, ten minutes and got on stage and won the world duck calling contest with it. You know, really? Damn, all worked. And uh, <laughs> you know, when I was going to sell the business, one another guy was was looking to buy it. Well known call maker. I won't use his name. And, and, and the bottom line was, all he wanted was the technology. He wanted the technology that you had developed to, to cut those surfaces, to make those calls, and in his words, every one of them works. You know, that's yeah. what he wanted. He was willing but, to spend a lot But, of you know, Jim, I always maintained you can't copy a duck call. I never copied my own duck calls. You know, well, I, designed them. I designed the call. But that's the thing they miss, you know. They just... That just doesn't compute. And again, you know, uh, to the listening audience here, Jim and I, you know, sorry we're doing some old personal reminiscing here, but we're glad to have you, you know, listening in on us. Uh, Jim and I started out best of friends, what was it, did you say 87? 87. Yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, when we sold, when when Jim bought that business and I sold it, we started out best of friends. We still are. And the reason that's the case, because I've, I've been an old businessman. I've been in more businesses than duck call business. And I've known a lot of businessmen. And the number of guys that start out as friends and end up as dead enemies are way more than those that stay friends. And I'll tell you the secret. With Jim and I, we both were more interested and the other guy's welfare, the other guy's benefit, the other guy's value of this deal than we were in our own. That's and that's, that's tough to beat. That's true. Anyway, Kelly, I'm hogging your show. No, you're doing well, great. Hey. I'm loving the crap out of this. Let me ask you something just real quick, Jim. I mean, <clears throat> did you... I'm, I'm guessing from the numbers I'm hearing, it takes it takes like a good eight or nine hours to go through the Carlson calling system, right? Well, oh. when I oh. Oh. When, oh my. when I was when I was teaching this, uh, and, and, and you know it evolved so much over the years. You know, I would sit down going back to you know Wendell had cassette tapes, and, and I would transcribe you know a ninety minute cassette tape. You know, type it. You know. Uh, because the, the, the thirst for the knowledge to learn this stuff. And uh, you, you can't teach it if you don't learn it. I mean, you got to know it from top to bottom. You Amen. You can't you know, teach what you don't know. Yeah, you can't teach what you don't know, and nobody learns more than the teacher. We've always said Amen that. to that, buddy. Amen. <laughs> you know, because as a teacher, you learn what maybe works, what maybe is a better way to get something across. So over all these years, you know, because I, I basically got started in 87 and, and started teaching, like, in 88 with Jim O'Keefe in Omaha there. And we went from, Jim O'Keefe was a graphic artist, and, and he would, he painted, I guess, because he was an artist, flip charts, you know, and he had all the, the mouth cavity sizes and the key, kick, kick, cat, cock, co, cock, go, how's that? All those, those key words and sounds, and, uh, you know, and from there it went to, to taking pictures of the flip charts, the slides, and then eventually, at the end, it was on on, on PowerPoint, you know, and, and and we would mix in videos and, and and stuff where we could actually call the ducks and and let the students also at the end, you know, actually call ducks. So, you know, but to learn it, you know, you're not going to learn it in eight hours. 
you're not going to learn it in, uh, in, in six months. You, you might get a very good grasp on it in six months. Uh, but it, 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 it's a long time to learn it's, this stuff. It's like, it's like I told that old bull of the blind. Two to three years, depending on how much you work at it and practice with purpose and what your talent is. Nobody knows that, but at least go at it like a job. you got a chance. Yeah, you know, so so the presentation that, you know, that I'd end up giving, you know, was three nights. We'd, we'd run these classes three nights uh, for about three hours a night. So that was about a nine-hour presentation. Well, all that did was give those students everything. We never held anything back. I never believed in holding anything back. You know, a lot of guys, they don't want to share the information because they want to be the big frog in the pond, you know, but we always wanted to share the information with the idea that guys become better callers, they become better sportsmen, you know, you, you get the ducks closer, you shoot the drakes, you don't shoot the head. I mean, the whole the whole schmear is, is worked into that, that, that nine-hour presentation. You know, and some guys would walk away and never come back because they thought, you got to be kidding me. i got to do this, you know, to learn how to blow a duck call. Well, you know, how, how, how good do you want to get? You know, are you happy like one of those? Are you happy now? Why are you coming here? But, uh, you know, then the, we'd have them in the spring. We'd have them in the, in the before hunting season. Some guys would come back for that second session, and then they'd keep coming back. You know, and those were the guys. Those were the guys that eventually got pretty good after two or three years of coming back twice a year because they kept building and building and building upon. You know, and some guys got as good as they wanted to get just to call ducks. And, like, you know, anybody can. Ducks are, ducks are easy to call. If you know what you're doing, ducks are easy. Uh, we've always said that. Uh, not meaning that you can call all the ducks all the time, obviously, but ducks are easy. They're stupid. Uh, you know, they got a brain the size of whatever. But, they're easier. Uh, they're easier to call than judges. <laughs> I'll tell you I guess that's a fact. You know, uh, depends on. Uh, hopefully, you got decent judges because Lord knows there's plenty of dingbats get be judges. Well, when you guys were doing these seminars and doing the doing the, the sessions and stuff, um, yeah. did did they have did the people have to pay to come to those things? And if, did they have to use a Carlson call? Or well, here, here's the thing. That's a good question. That's a real good question. Uh, Give yourself a star for that question. Uh, Amen. We ran, we ran them through DCAN, the Duck Callers Association of Nebraska, and we charged ten dollars. And you know that basically didn't cover anything because they they got a they got a tape. They always got a, a ninety minute cassette tape, you know, that was theirs. But we charged them ten bucks. One guy said you had to charge a hundred dollars, and he said then these people would take it serious. <laughs> Good point. They don't care. But uh, did they have to use a Carlson call? Well, here's the thing. Nobody's ever argued with the sounds that the calls make. Nobody's ever argued, you know, when we're up there blowing these calls. But every time a guy would come up after class and he'd hand you a call, and he'd say, you know, this has been in the family for 100 years or whatever, you know, can, can, can I learn with this call? And it could be an XYZ call, you know, whatever. And I'd blow the call, you know. And, and if, and uh, you know, like Wendell always has said, you know, I don't make or we didn't make the only call out there that worked. There's other calls out there that work. But they have to be able to do the things, obviously, that we're teaching. 
Because we don't teach, like I would tell them, we're not teaching you how to call a duck. Call a duck is easy. You'll teach yourself how to call a duck. What we're going to teach you how to do is play this instrument. And if you have a functional instrument, if you're coming to a class to learn how to play a guitar and you bring a goddamn tuba, excuse me, you're not going to learn how to play a guitar. You know, so they would have calls that would work. And I'd say, fine, not a problem. Others, they, you know, they, they were just, they were, they were totally non-functional calls and say, sorry. So we always had the $20 equalizer. So they get a $20 equalizer, which, trust me, is as good a call as there is out there. I don't, you'll never convince me otherwise. It's, it's the same as the bottle choke, obviously, except without the choke tubes. Uh, you know, and, and when I had the business, I, you know, I was modifying equalizers into competition calls that would, you know, you could win contests with them. I won the world contest with a $29 duck call. People never believed it, and they, they still don't believe it. Oh, I believe it. I, I, there's, it's, it's just like I'm not, I'm not plugging these guys because they're not owned by the same people anymore, but um, that little Joel that was made by Southern Game Calls, you know, first time I heard one of those, I, I rocked back and said, whoa, what was that? And the guy said, it's just a little cheap polycarbonate call. It's like, no. And, uh, you know, people sometimes badmouth those those little poly calls, and they're, they're badmouthing them from a position of ignorance. Because they're so you know, well, they, if they're, if they're yeah. well-designed, uh, they, can, they can get the job done. The thing that you'll find, generally speaking, though, and, again, I don't like generalities so well, but uh, most any type of quote-unquote plastic – call is going to be a little higher pitched, a little uh, more, uh, yeah, even ducky. Uh, the handcrafted real wood that actually works is going to be a little mellower uh, and uh, probably a little less volume uh, per amount of effort of operation. But no, as far as, uh, as, far as those equalizers, dang betcha, man, they'll, they'll, they'll crack off and get her done. Oh, yeah. yeah. For, for 1995, and you got a tape with them. Yeah, and, uh, you know, because this, this was a show where you're telling stories, so I'll tell sto- another story. Uh, World Contest one year, might, it might have been the year I won because it was toward the end of the line there, and I quit after I won it, but uh, so it was either 95, 96, whatever. I'm down there, and there's a guy blowing a call over in a parking lot right before he's going in the trailer to blow in the contest, and he's just cranking and cranking and cranking and cranking on that call, and I walk over there because I always blew about, you know, four or five top end ringing notes, and then I went and got on the trailer. That's all I needed to do. And uh, and, he, and he goes, I can't get my, I can't get my call to ring. He goes, You Jim James? I go, Yeah. He goes, I can't get my call to ring. I can't get my call to ring. He's a call maker, okay? He's a call maker. And I go, Give it to me. I took it and blew 15 seconds, and I had it ringing. And and he goes, How do you do that? And I go, Well, he just made a big mouth cavity with this call. And, you know, and he, but he had no conception. You know, he had no conception of what I was trying to tell him. And, of course, you know, he, he didn't do real well in that contest. But I can't tell you the number of call makers over the years that I have sold calls and instructions to. And Wendell probably the same thing. Uh, you know, there was another well-known call maker. His call had one champion of champions. He handed me a very one of his very first calls that he made. He goes, tell me what you think of this, Jim Gaines. And I blew it. First thing I do is hit that low end stuff, you know. <laughs> See if it's got duck, and it did. And I hit the top end, went through the whole thing. And, and he goes, my God. 
He goes, how'd you do that? And I go, what? Goes, how'd you make that sound? I go, what? And he goes, I made that call. I never got that sound out of that call. <laughs> and I walked away from it and walked back over and talked to some, some guys from Cedar Rapids. And he come running over to me. He goes, I just found something out. It ain't the call. It's the guy blowing the call. Well, Light bulb come news, on. News flashes both of them, both the yeah, call and the operator. Yeah. Hey, what, how much time we got, Kelly? Well, I scheduled this show for two hours, so we got 20 minutes left. Yeah. Holy mackerel, I, I figured an hour and a half of this would probably drive anybody plumb out of the county. No, but, this is good. This is good stuff, man. I got a star out of this line. show, so you can't take that away from me. It always has been. It's the, inter- it's the interface between the, the operator and the call. If you, you can be the best operator in the world, but you can't make a call to make sounds that it's not got in it by design. And, you, know, you you will you will get yeah. the most out of that piece of junk that's able to. Though so you you yeah. will because Absolutely. your your versatility will be able to overcome a lot of the deficiencies in design. But no, it, it, the closer the you remember we mentioned the last trip around here about that bell curve business. And the closer you are to center norms on that bell curve on all of the necessary operational characteristics and all of the necessary design functions, the the easier it is to run, the more versatility you have, and uh, the, the, any time you're out of line, you get far enough out on the skirts, nobody can make it work. It's junk. Right. right. Pure and simple. And... Uh... You know, I, I, over the years, and, and everything that's happened to me happened to Wendell ten times over. But I would have guys call me, you know, and they just fight it. I want the best call you can make. I don't care what it costs. You know, I just want the best call. Those kind of people scared me. You know, you're in the business. Of course, you want their money. <laughs> those are the kind of guys that you sell them a $200 duck call that's absolutely, you know, dead center on the bell curve. You know, it's what Wendell used to call a walk-around call. Yeah, you there you go. You just like to walk around and blow it. It's just there. You and, may have you, know, you may have blown five hundred calls that day, and once in a while you hit that one that's right there. And even though you've been blowing your your bottom end off all day, you, it's just so sweet and nice and fits so good. You just walk around and blowing on it. Ain't that right, Jim? It, it just yeah, feels well, right. Yeah, but but the point, you know, the, where, I, where I was going with it was the guy wants to spend the money, willing to spend the money, and in his mind he's thinking if I get the most expensive call, you know, it's going to it's gonna make him the best call or whatever. But that's the kind of a guy that you sell him the best call, and if he has no conception of how to get out of a call within the call, because you can, and I would tell guys, you can take the best, best call there is, and you can make it sound like crap. And the worst thing I wanted to do was sell a guy a very expensive, really good call, have him do that, put it in his drawer, and say, oh, that Jim James screwed me. You know, yeah. I would, a lot of times I would tell these guys, let's do this. I'll sell you a $20 equalizer, a DVD, and a CD. You listen, see what we, how we teach us what we're doing, and then you want that $200 duck call, call me back. Because, and I would tell guys, so many guys I would tell them, once you learn how to operate a call, once you understand this instructional system, and you can pick these calls up, any call, and, and, and get out of what's in it, decide what it has, what it may be lacking, 
I said, you'll go back to that drawer full of calls that every duck hunter has, and I said, you'll open that drawer, and you'll start going through that drawer full of calls, and you'll be finding you've got calls in there that you thought were junk that maybe are pretty good calls. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a lot of stories. <laughs> well, you know, talking about that $200 uh, mentality, Jim, uh, brought to mind a guy that was competition caller, and uh, thought he was a whole hell of a lot better than he was. And he bought a $200 uh, competition-grade call, but he decided that he wanted it louder. So he took a reamer and honed out the uh, insert some more. Yeah, you remember remember me telling you about that? And not only that, he was he was dumb enough that he brought it back and was bitching at me about the fact the call didn't work. And I took one look at it, and I said, well, I don't suppose it does. He said, well, uh, I thought I could I do it. I said, you know what? You just got a $200 education. There's a whole lot of grass between thinking you can, you know, modify a call and improve it and he, getting it he done. He had a nickname. We called him Mike the Modifier after that. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> That's the guy. <laughs> uh, you do remember that, don't you? Hey, uh, Jim, while, I, yeah. while you're still here on the show, um, what what um, what made you want to sell the business? I mean, well, I wasn't going to sell it for another couple years. I wanted to wait till I was about 62, uh, like what Wendell was up, I think, 62. I wanted to wait till I was about 62. But I had a young guy who had some fire in him, and he, you know, he had the financing and the money available to do this. And in this day and age, like I, because people ask me that a million times, and I said, if I'd have said no and wanted to wait another couple of years, not, not how often does somebody walk to your front door, you know, with a suitcase? I'm not going to, you know, exaggerating, but a suitcase full of money. You don't, you don't turn it down when, when the opportunity presents itself. So, you know, I probably basically sold it a couple of years before I wanted to, but I had a, a guy. I had, you know, he had the money, and uh, it, you know, it, it, it worked out. Okay. Well, that's that. Yeah, I mean, I completely understand. You know, it's like yeah. bird in the hand versus two in the bush kind of a thing. You know. Well, yeah. You know, I could have waited a couple of years and would have put us. Right now in this economy, uh, you know, it might have might have been a little rougher, and uh, the guy may have moved on and done something else, uh, whatever. But uh, no, I mean, I I enjoyed it, uh, you know. Uh, like Wendell says, you know, everything I learned I learned from him. But he's, you know, Wendell Carlson has more sayings, more great truths than anybody I've ever known. But one of them is. Uh, what the hell? I just heard. Oh, <laughs> now see, that's <laughs> what happens when you get to be an old fart, Jim. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's no money in making duck. Calls. There's no money to be made in making duck calls, but there is some money to be made if you can yeah. sell them. Yeah, making duck calls don't making duck calls don't make any money, but there's a little money to be had in selling duck calls. That's that's the actual quote from the old horse's mouth. Hey, Kelly, you know, you ask him how come he sold it. You didn't ask me how come I sold it. I didn't have a chance to ask you, Wendell. Before I could ask you, you went on ahead and told me. (laughs) No, I haven't told you yet. 
The reason I sold it was because Jim was the first guy dumb enough that had $750,000 to give me. Oh. No, 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 no. You're smarter than to believe that. <laughs> well, you said he, he used to work for the district attorney, and I'm thinking, well, I wonder how much men, stuff is missing from the evidence locker. So. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't well, think so. That you, that you turn well, the reins over yeah. to. I mean, Going back to that, no money to be made in making duck calls, but some money to be made if you can sell them. You know, right. I know Wendell, you know, and Wendell, you know, very frugal, very thrifty guy. And uh, I kind of did the same thing. And, uh, you know, so I sold a lot of duck calls, and I didn't, you know, like some people, they get money, they got to go spend it. And I didn't do that either. And, uh, you know, so when I was ready to, to sell it, you know, I wasn't, you know, going down. You weren't the, exactly destitute. No, you know, I, I did what you did. You know, I I said, I, I, I didn't spend the money. <laughs> well, no, the we, guy uh, that bought it, what you said his name is Ryan. Is he going to, is he going to continue selling the Carlson uh, system for calling? Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, here's, here's the thing, you know, years ago, I had to beg Wendell to make that, at the time, video. And uh, I think he just felt sorry for me because I put the time and the work and to actually type the script. And, you know, I, I, I did the script. I'd send it over to Wendell. And he'd critique, you know, and correct and fix and send it back. And, you know, eventually we had this 90-minute uh, uh, script. And, and he, he and all I wanted was just I, I was willing to do a homemade video to document this instructional system because in my mind when Wendell was gone, maybe I'm gone, whatever, this thing needed to live. And and that was the full reason I, I was doing this stuff. Back That's no days. BS. That That is absolute. Jim was the directing force behind that video. And there's no two ways about it. There's one other guy that was a champion caller that's uh, on the video also. But... Uh, I didn't have time. You know, I, I no. just absolutely was swamped with other things. I just, Don't forget, I was still in the electronics business, too, you know, some of this that period. So, yeah, Jim Wendell, Jim picked up that ball Wendell, around with it. And Wendell said to me, you know, because I wanted to do just a homemade video, and he goes, no, because he saw the script, and he you know, he says, I'll I'll put the bill. You know, I'll we'll, we're going to do this right. And so, uh, you know, we, we we hired, I found some people in Omaha that had the production studio and, and whatnot, and we made that. That, was, mas- that was mastered in beta. That was mastered yeah. in beta, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so now, of course, it, it's onto a DVD. So that's always going to be out there. And, and And the thing about that instructional DVD now, it doesn't matter that it was made in 1996 or 7 or whatever it was. That information is just as important and valid because in, in, the, the system is, is, is based in physics. It, you know, there's no if, ands, or buts. There's no BS about it, and, and that will live forever now. So, you know, what Ryan chooses to do if someday he wants to sit down, I, don't, I doubt if he would because of just the work involved uh, of trying to put it together with him being in it. Uh, you know, I, I must have just been young and stupid when I did it. I don't know. <laughs> well, it, isn't, it isn't just the works. It's the bucks, too. You know, if you're going to make oh, a professional yeah. production, it ain't cheap. Yeah. 
No, it's you know that's that that's one thing I have a little bit of experience in is is you know getting involved with playing soundtracks for for music and stuff and uh, yeah, it's not cheap. You, you start start trying to think the making of a wheel, you know, just to get a better quality of video. It's like <laughs> you're going to be spending a lot of money, you know. Yeah. So and, and what, you know, I don't know what I don't know what you know, I I try to try to keep my nose out of it. Just like Wendell kept his nose out of it when I had it. If I had a question, you bet. I, went to, I went to him, and he gave me, you know, everything that he could give me knowledge-wise. If I had a question, and I do the same thing with Ryan, but but, but Wendell kept his nose out of it. You know, he, he knew it was mine, and I was going to do what I was going to do, and, you know, I, I knew I had to do a few different things. Uh, you know, Wendell never took a, a credit card in his life. He never sold a duck call with a credit card. You know, he didn't want to share that that percentage but uh i found out real quick, I found out hey. real quick that, that you got to do that <laughs> well, hey you know there's there's two things that, that i bring to mind that jim brings to mind right there number one you know i remember being being a little older here i and incidentally we haven't gotten any of these old time stories i was going to tell you about the old market hunters i knew and stuff when i was young and they were old but you know I can remember when a duck hunter was just a damn short notch above chicken thieves. I mean, it was not. They didn't have a fine reputation. And uh, I took everybody's check from anywhere, their personal checks from anywhere for all those decades, and I would ship the calls as soon as I got the check. I never cleared one check in my life. And I'll tell you what, in all those years, I got stuck with one bounced check that I couldn't I couldn't play. There were, to be honest with you, there was a couple of dudes out in California that made it pretty tough because, you know, what am I going to do, run out to California and kick their posterior? I don't think so. But it happened that they knew, and by that time I knew a bunch of guys out there, and I said, you know, I'd feel really, really bad if I had to uh, kind of let it be known that your signature, your word isn't worth a dang. And pretty soon I'd, I'd get, you know, uh, get the check would be going through. The one that bounced is still here in the, in my desk drawer, and I'm not going to dig back for it. It's buried there somewhere. It was like for $10.81, and the reason I, it was no good was because this young guy had wanted a refurb, and that was like 10 bucks back then, and his wife run off on him, cleaned out the check uh, uh, the check deposits that he had. He didn't have any money, I mean at all. She basically got him everything in his underwear and socks. And, you know, I just didn't have the heart to push that. That poor bugger had enough trouble without, and I didn't need no $10.81 or whatever that bad. But, boy, I mean to tell you as an old businessman, shoot, the electronics business in CR – if we didn't get a half a dozen rubber checks a month, we figured we weren't doing any business. Huh. I never got a I never got a bad check in all the years I did it. People would say, yeah. "Will you take a check?" and I'd say, "Yeah." And uh then I would always say, "I've never had one ever bounce on me, and you don't want to be the first." No. I Remember what I said, Jim headed up the rubber check division over there in yeah. Douglas County. They didn't want hey, to screw just with real him. Quick, um 
when you were selling calls, did you ever sell any? We got we got listeners on tonight from New Zealand, Australia, and all over the globe. Wonderful. Um, and one of the guys I wants to know: Did you ever sell any calls back in New Zealand back when you were making them? I, did, I sold a lot of calls to Australia, and and of course, you know, because of technology and digital age coming into play, four or five years ago, I had a guy from Australia email me. And they can use electronic callers down there. And uh, he wanted sound files so that he could put them on these electronic callers. And he paid me $500 to just sit in front of my computer with a microphone and create a wave file of, of a highball, a hand mallard greeting. It's a low-end work. I think there were four or five, 10, 15 seconds sound files, and then I, you know, I gave him the rights to him, sent him a letter and said he had the rights to him, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, and I sold a lot of calls uh, over in that area. Okay. That, no, I, I never did. Uh, like I say, Tokyo and Saudi Arabia and uh, Kuwait and like that, um, of course, you know, we're talking back there, you know, crying out loud, 50 years ago and so forth, so, yeah. I don't know. Right. Did those guys in New Zealand have did they have they discovered duck hunting by that back then? Oh no, it's always been big over there. You know, it's it has. You know. Over there, over there, Canada geese are a nuisance. You can shoot as many as you want, I think. Right. Yeah, I make it that way here sometimes. But uh, I was talking to Ryan the other day, and he has been selling a hell out of calls, bolichos, and sending them to a guy in Russia. I mean, thousands of dollars worth of calls to a guy in Russia who wants to be the distributor for Carlson Calls in Russia. <laughs> so hey, Dave, I'll tell you right thing. now, I have got a small stack of black canvas micarta in my shop that's going to be getting turned into speckle-bellied calls, and it's yeah. a guy from Russia. Yeah, you know? I don't know what's going on over there. But well, they, they, finally got, they finally got some money because the, the commie thing fell on his posterior some years ago, and they're finally some people getting some money to do something with. Oh, yeah. I think the guy that, that's buying all my stuff, he was he was busy right after the fall of the of the Iron Curtain. He was busy selling tanks, you know, on the open market. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you guys, I need so, some people to buy a speckle belly goose call, you know. Wendell was talking selling calls over in uh, Saudi Arabia. I sold a bunch of calls to a guy in Egypt. And, really? And, uh, I didn't know about that. Well, it, and it's all email, you know. And, uh, so yeah. He, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I, so I emailed him back, and I said, you got ducks in Egypt? And he says, if you got water, you got ducks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, all uh. you, you know. Yeah, they, anyway, you know, they, there's people, people think of Egypt as being nothing but a desert. Same thing with Iraq and Iran. And um, there's there's a lot of places over there that you kind of scratch your head and go, this is not what I thought it would be, you know. Right. Well, that's what, and, I, that's what I found out. You know, he says, if you got water, you got ducks. And, you, you know, I, I sold them like Wendell all over the world, Turkey, uh, just, I mean, just all sorts of countries, and you just shake your head. Uh, but that's safe. You know, you can always tell a duck hunter, you just can't tell him much. Duck hunter will find the money, too. I mean, Wendell, how how many calls did you send to a guy's office? Don't ever send them to his house. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that a time or three. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I actually if had I, a guy if my wife ever if my wife ever calls you, you don't know nothing about us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had a guy not too long ago send me a PayPal payment for a set of calls and um in the in the note down there in the footnote, do not send these to the address above. Send it to this following address. And it was his business address. He was a realtor yeah. out in California. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was probably not a real good thing because his wife probably would have had a conniption fit, you know. So Yeah. But you never know. I mean, there, there's guys that just like to collect calls, you know. Um, sure. People see them and they, they get going. And, you know, I'm going to yeah. take this opportunity for another blatant plug, you know. The uh, Wendelson uh, Carlson Championship Calls, uh, you can find those now. They're part of his private collection that um, guys that, uh, oh, my God, uh, Marshmutt are selling. And you can find them at marshmutt.com. And they are the ones hand-turned by Wendell. They're they're his calls. Uh, he dug them out of his collection to give these guys to, to sell them for him. And, and you can get an, an original Carlson championship call turned by Carlson, by Wendell Carlson. And I think they're for under 100 bucks. And Yeah, uh, as I sold those same calls for... Seventy-five bucks back in that would have been uh, uh, eighty. Well, late seventies through the eighties. Jim bought the business from me in ninety-eight, wasn't it, Jim? Yeah, January ninety-nine, I think. Yeah. Yeah, right. And um, so, yeah, these um, these calls, uh, you bet. I got seventy-five bucks for them. Now you figure out, you know, with inflation, what it is. Uh, I think they're getting eighty bucks for them, uh, and some shipping. Mm-hmm. Why shoot? That's that. They're actually less money with inflation than than what I was getting for them twenty five, thirty years ago. I was going to say that's about thirty five dollars compared to you know then. Yeah, forget the forget the fact that Wendell made them eighty dollars for a functional duck call. Yeah, yeah, it actually works. You know. Yeah, it actually works. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a different different concept. <laughs> well, you know what? That's what's – I don't know. You know, there's a lot of guys, and I know I've seen it since I've been doing it. I haven't been doing it nearly as long as you guys have, but um, I, I think I started making calls about nine years ago, eight or nine years ago, and um, <clears throat> there has been such an influx of guys getting into the business making duck calls because they see like they see like R and T and and I'm not saying the show Duck Dynasty has anything to do with it, but you see these guys thinking, Good God, if that's all you got to do is to, to make a million dollars, I'm going to get into it. And <laughs> all I'm telling you, Wendell, I mean, I I cannot tell you how many times a week I get phone calls from people wanting to know how to make duck calls. Okay? Oh, I've been there, been there a long, long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. And here, here's another great truth. There's a lot of heartache in making duck calls. You got that right. In fact, well, I've got on on my kind of a halfway script here. I've got uh, that exact uh, quote, you know, that that you and I talked about a long time ago, Jim. And uh, that did not originate with me. In fact, here it is. Um, let's talk a bit about the side of call making that's not funny. Ship jumpers, not married to your student. And this guy uh, told me, lots of heartaches and duck calls. quote from the guy uh, that I had never talked to him. He, though, made the first call I ever got a hold of that made a little bit of sense. Wasn't that, wasn't that good a call? 
but at least it interfaced with the talent that I had. If I can play a dang sax by ear, I ought to be able to play a duck call by ear. And um, lo and behold, it made a little sense. I've still got the call. I got a hell of a bunch of, of old, old calls. Well, I, I got, uh, oh, jeez, I don't even start naming them off here. It'll be here all night. I've collected them for years. A lot of guys wanted duck calls of mine that didn't have the money. I traded everything from shotguns and prints and calls and clothes and, oh, hell, I even had my whole house painted. And if I told you the name of the guy that painted that, you would dang sure know it. <laughs> but I won't. But anyway, I walked up to that guy because I knew who it was. Now, there's a dude selling it, claimed he made it. I knew damn well he had and never made a duck call it worth a hoot. But some years later, after I had, you know, been selling calls and winning championships, I happened to see him at a calling contest. And I walked over to him and introduced myself to him. And he said, yeah, I know who you are. And I said, you know, I wanted to tell you something for a long time. And um, he said, what's that? And I explained to him just what I explained to you now. And he says, yeah, no doubt you figured out by now, Wendell, there's a lot of heartaches in duck calls. And indeed, there is not just the duck calls. The nurturing guys from the time they didn't know squat, time they were going to school, and then have them jump ship on you. But so it goes. You know, like I yeah. say, yeah, they don't marry you. And uh, yeah. one thing about it, there's going to be fickleness. I don't give a hoot. Why the hell do you think uh, fish lure makers? I got fish lures I bought 40 years ago that still catch fish. But, shoot, you got to have a new bunch of sparkly stuff the next spring catalog because that's the way guys are. Yeah. You know, they, they, they're always looking for that magic answer to their problems and uh, just buying the shiniest, brightest thing on the block is not going to solve the problem. No, but, you know, that's that's the nature of guys. We're easily distracted sure with, with large things and shiny stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not going there. <laughs> I'm just and they want it right now. <laughs> yeah. And you know no, what? They the thing is, it's like you said, they can have the best duck call in their hand in, in, that's ever been built, all right? But they're going to hear one, and, oh, man, I like the sound of that. And they're, yeah. they're going to drop what they got in a drawer and go run off and buy something else. And thank you very much for that sort of behavior because, you know, that's why we sell calls. You sell them, I sell them, everybody sells them, you know. But yeah. It's just the way it's always a lot of these guys, always will be. Well, there's a lot of these guys that are getting in the business, and this is uh, this is one of my personal pet peeves. Um, they know enough to drill a 5-8-inch hole in a chunk of wood. They turn it down into a barrel. They, they figured out how to get Gorilla Glue to hold a band on. You know, for at least a season. So. And yeah. um, then all of a sudden, uh, the things just go out the door with a, with an insert from X, Y, and Z company, and they're calling a custom-made call. You know? Talking about insert, I'm going to do this real quick because we got to be really short on time here. I wanted to warn the guys. I happened to be cruising eBay the other day, and I seen a Carlson call there. And it had a handcrafted barrel and a injection molded insert, and was advertised. I think it was for fifty bucks. And I'd advise you guys, you know, be careful on this buying this stuff like that because I don't. I'm unaware that there's ever a Carlson call. I know damn sure I never saw one with an uh, an insert that was uh, injection molded, uh, like for an equalizer. And put it in a wood barrel. So I got to believe it was a phony 
But there it was. Well, you so, know, I saw something, and it was a, a gentleman that was a contemporary of yours, and that's Paul Kenyon. And he was from up around your part of the world, wasn't he? Sure. Oh. I knew I knew Paul very well. Yeah. He, uh, well we a had kid. a cabin seven miles south of Burlington. He lived in Burlington. Well, there's a kid that, that's out in California that's making calls look just like Paul, okay? And ignore her. We're going to keep talking. Um, <laughs> that's making calls just look exactly like his. And then he goes on to tell this story about how he was making these calls and that you know he blows calls so well and he's – um, doing all this stuff, and and they're and he's not shy about it, you know. He yeah. is absolutely not shy about the fact that he's making uh, Paul Kenyon lookalikes, and he's even calling them Kenyon calls. Yeah, that's right? that's BS. He ought to get nailed. Uh, well, I've seen is, I've seen ponies of mine. Nobody. I've seen ponies of mine that I absolutely thought were mine. I thought I'd made them, but boy, hey, blow them, and I don't think so. Junk. Yeah. Well, see, the thing is, I, I wanted to talk to the to the surviving members of the family um, about Paul because, obviously, he passed away before I had a chance to get him on the show, so I was wanting to get a hold of one of his kids or whatever. And, you know, um, they really didn't want to have anything to do with coming on the show or anything else. It's just like that's over and done with. And, yeah. and I, I did ask uh, one of the grandkids, well, how do you feel about this guy out in California using your grandpa's name in his calls and claiming that, you know, he has the rights to build them because your grandpa told him he could. And, and um, it was it was kind of a disturbing thought. I mean, and the kid's like, you know, he goes, I understand. He goes, I, guess I hadn't heard about that, but my dad doesn't really want to mess with it. So it's like, okay. Yeah, and, uh, yeah I, uh, I met, I've met Paul's son out there, too. And, but, um, yeah, it is very disturbing, you know, when, uh, when you put your heart and soul into something. And, and that's why I started branding my calls. I never branded them before 76, I think was when I first started branding them. And then there were like five guys counterfeiting them. And, man, you know, I couldn't handle that, so I copyrighted the. And incidentally, if you ever see a brand on a call that they claim I made that's perfect, wrong. I never had a perfect brand on a call in my life. You want to see a perfect brand, check out those lasers on gym stuff. And probably Brian's, Ryan's too. But yeah, I rolled my barrels across the uh, branding iron, and of course the grain differential is such that they'll never be a perfect brand of mine. So if they're perfect, they're lasered, and that's great too. It look a whole lot better, fancy stuff. <laughs> well, guys, I'll tell you what. Right now we are we are way past the end of the show time, and I'm getting a little nasty note flashing at me here from the mother station. Oh, so uh, I gotta I'll tell you bed. what, I Wendell. What's that? I gotta get to bed. I gotta get up at five o'clock. Go shoot more ducks. Oh, cry <laughs> me a river, hey. you big lug! Hey, tell Al, tell Al hi from me, will you, Jim? I will, and uh, you tell uh, you tell bye hi. Give give bye a hug. Yeah, and Sal, when you get home, you take care now. Have a good hunt. Hi. Hey, just in case you're interested, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to bend Wendell's arm into coming back next Wednesday so we can actually get to what he wanted to talk about tonight. Well, I tell you what, if I got I got to make a quick a quick comment here. I am honored that you ask. I can't uh commit my sweet wife of 53 years. Her kidneys are diseased. They're only working 8% and we're having some tough times here and and uh the only thing that's going to work is a uh, transplant. And uh anybody with type A positive this is in good health wants a transplant, buddy. Uh, you won't have to worry about buying any more duck calls the rest of your life. 
But anyway, uh, what we better do here, Kelly, is uh, maybe two weeks, three weeks down the road here, uh, give me a call. And I'll let you know how she's doing, and that will kind of determine what what I can do because I'm and I'm her health care provider. Okay. Well, I appreciate you sharing that information with me. Um, it'll be in my prayers, bud. All right. Hey, I appreciate that, and also I appreciate uh, your audience, your listening audience. I um, I really uh, am happy to be able to to spend a little time, let you guys get to know me a little better. I'm not near as big a, a posterior as everybody always said. <laughs> Y'all take care. All right, thanks, Wendell. Okay. Thanks, Thank Jim. You. I appreciate okay. you calling in, man. It was it was made for a great show. All right. Yeah, okay. thanks, Jim. Okay. Okay. All right, thanks, guys. Yeah. Right. You take care now. Okay. See you guys. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that ends our show tonight. Um, went a little over, but that's okay. No big deal. Um, Jim James, the the second owner of Carlson Championship Calls, joined in the last little bit there. Just kind of fun. Um, going to try to get Wendell back on one more time because he's still got, I mean, everything we talked about pre-show that he wanted to talk about, he kind of touched on, but there was a bunch of stuff he wanted to share. So anyway, it was a different kind of a show. It, it was a couple hours long, a lot of fun. Um, anyway. It's all about learning, and you know the thing about it is, one day we're all going to look back on, on this show and say, "Man, that was really cool when he was on there." Blah blah blah, you know. Um, so, anyway, you guys have a great evening. Thanks again for tuning in. I appreciate it. And next week, I'm not sure who I've got. I've got oh somebody, somebody with Nash Nash. I'm sorry, Nashville and NASCAR roots. That'll help you out. It's kind of a surprise next week. All right. You guys take care, and we will talk to you real soon. All right? Good night. God bless.